With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIT preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Take advantage of their November specials. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWH Back training sc.com to inquire. Hello and welcome to Lakeside Drive. It's no secret that one of the reasons I love Formula One is for the personalities involved, and I've always hoovered up research and information as it relates to personalities and behavior. One question I've always had is whether Formula One drivers are really just a special breed. And the same goes for other individuals who seemingly take astronomical risks in the name of thrill-seeking and experience. To help understand what goes on in the brains of the thrill-seekers amongst us, I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Ken Carter, a clinical psychologist, science writer and researcher. I hope you enjoy this episode of Lakeside Drive, where we dive inside the minds of thrill seekers. And if you hang around till the very end, find out if I am a thrill seeker or a chill seeker. Let's get into it. Dr. Ken Carter, thank you so much for joining me here on Lakeside Drive. Perhaps you could just get started by telling our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Ken Carter. Um, I am a professor of psychology at uh, Oxford College of Emory University here in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Um, I'm a researcher, I teach, um, and I've actually written a book on the psychology of thrill-seeking. Fantastic. And that is why we are here. We'll get stuck into that in just a minute. But before we do, there are any number of areas in psychology to undergo research, to read about, to write about. What was it about sensation seeking or thrill seeking that you found so fascinating that you had to not just study it, but write a book about it? (laughs) Well, you know, funny is that I wasn't a book that I intended to write at the first place. I was actually writing a book with an entirely different title. It was going to be called um, The Chaos Junkie's Guide to Life. Um, And the idea was... (laughs) That And we all know people who are like this, that I call chaos junkies. And the idea was to try, try to figure out how to make them less chaotic. Because anyone that's met me knows that I don't really have very much of a chaotic life. And the idea was <laughs> to sort of teach them how to be 
calmer and less chaotic. And so I started diving into writing this book and I discovered some really fascinating research by a Canadian psychologist named Marvin Zuckerman about this really interesting personality trait called sensation seeking. And I discovered that some of these chaos junkies are chaotic on purpose um, because they um, are really calm in this in the midst of a chaotic environment. And I thought, that's really interesting. Let me throw out this book about chaos junkies and dive into the research about people who are high sensation seekers. And it's really been a fascinating um, journey. That's amazing. I'm sure as you were kind of in the depths of your research and then you were learning about those things, you kind of think, wait a second, this is a bit of a, a curveball. I think some of the the best outcomes from from research and writing are almost come about in that way. You know, the ones you don't see coming almost. That's really, really interesting. Oh, and I was actually fascinated by the idea that there weren't any popular books about this personality trait. There were all scientific books and, and journals that the everyday person probably would find really dull. And so I, I sort of <laughs> sat out to research and interview a lot of these high sensation seekers, and they are a really fascinating and incredible bunch of people. Amazing, I'm sure, and with some phenomenal stories to tell too, I'm sure. And to be fair, look, it's not just people who are not in academia who find some of those journals <laughs> quite dull. I'm going to put myself out there and say that was a tough time uh, when that was a big part of my life for somebody who is um, more experiential in their, in how they prefer to in, um, you know, process new information and learn things. But let's talk about high sensation seeking. My first question is, we've kind of thrown these words around, what is it and what would it mean to be a high sensation seeking individual in terms of your experience of the world? Yeah, well, sensation seeking is something that we all do. It's sort of the looking for varied um, kind of unusual uh, kinds of sensations in the world. Um, and so everyone is a sensation seeker of some sort. We're sort of drawn to new experiences in, in different varied ways. And so most people are in that average range of sensation seeking. I'm actually a fairly low sensation seeker. I consider myself more of a chill seeker than a thrill seeker. Um, <laughs> and there are people that are more high sensation seeking. Um, and the idea is to, to look at the, some of those different that you tend to find in those groups of people. And so, um, and there are four different components to that sensation-seeking personality. And it's just a personality trait. It's not good or bad. Different people will utilize it in different ways. And so um, the four different components of that sensation-seeking personality are thrill and adventure seeking. These are people who go out for, um, you know, sort of chaotic, exciting things that might be roller coasters or bungee jumping or race car driving. Um, and so people that are uh, do that kind of thing are sort of out for that thrill and adventure seeking. Um, but there's another kind of sensation seeking that you might have without realizing that you do, which is called experience seeking. So experience seeking is sensations of the mind and of the senses. It's sort of like sensation seeking kind of internally. It could be unusual foods or unusual travel, like going to exotic places, or even sort of liking sort of unconventional personalities or unconventional people. Um, and then the last two components of sensation seeking tell me in some ways how much trouble your sensation seeking <laughs> might get you into. Okay. One is called 
boredom susceptibility. This is how easy it is for you to get bored and how irritated you get when you get bored. Um, I I don't get bored really, really easily. I can sit for hours with not much excitement and I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot of my friends, on the other hand, five minutes if they don't have something to do and they're really irritated. Um, and the other part is called disinhibition. This is your ability to look before you leap. People that score high, um, just leap and try stuff without thinking it through. People that score low on disinhibition um, sort of plan things out. And so those four different pieces of that personality give you an idea of the kinds of sensations that you like and how much you sort of think through or just sort of do those things. It's a fascinating personality trait. Absolutely. And so really interesting that you've described it on a scale, which is generally speaking how we do talk about personality, generally mm-hmm. speaking. I know we have that whole idea of introversion or extroversion and we always you know, try to refer to that back to, to a scale in terms of we all have some of both. It's more about yeah. to where you get your energy and those types of things. So similar for this in, then in terms of the extent to which you need those things. Uh, talking about the need for it, High sensation seekers sometimes say it's you know it's in their blood or it feel they can feel it in their bones and when they're doing those you know high adrenaline um, activities or traveling to new places as you've explained or kind of being spontaneous and you've summarized that by saying you know it feels good to them at a cellular level. I expect that that type of adrenaline for many people, for most people probably even the thought of that level of adrenaline would be an experience that we would call stress. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, you ex- yeah. <laughs> can you explain what you mean by feeling good at a cellular level, cellular level? And can you explain to us how it works? Why does it feel like that for those people? Yeah. So let me talk about um, sort of average and low sensation seeking people first in terms of how those individuals might um, experience a highly chaotic or stressful experience. Um, So for example, like me on roller coasters, I'm a low sensation seeker. So when I'm on a roller coaster, well, one of the chemicals that my, whenever we have a stressful environment that that the body sends out is um, cortisol. That's that sort of A-lister uh, stress hormone. And what it what cortisol does is it gets our body ready to fight, flee, or freeze. And so heart rate goes up, um, your you know, your blood goes away from your stomach to so say you're not don't have a full tummy when you're running, which explains like butterflies in your stomach, and it gets us our body ready for stress. Um, and so when I'm in a, a really highly stressful situation, my body sends out tons of that cortisol, but the other chemical that it doesn't send out, uh, well, so that, that's, that's sort of typical for average and low sensation seeking people for high sensation seeking people, their body tends to send out lower amounts of that cortisol, but higher amounts of a neurotransmitter, which is a which is a brain chemical um, called dopamine. So dopamine, as you probably know, is associated with pleasure. So they have this really nice balance of pleasure and excitement, rather than just sort of pure stress, which is what I'm experiencing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so they have a really sort of nice balance 
um, of those two chemicals in their body when they're in those highly chaotic situations, which is really what they need in order to do pretty detailed stuff. Like I've interviewed people who were um, uh, thinking about going, being part of the Canadian Space Agency. There's a lot of detailed technical things you have to do in that situation, in a race car. So you need to have some focus too much cortisol and you can't focus that much. Um, And so that's a really nice balance for them. That's absolutely fascinating. And it's just bringing to mind so many moments of Formula One races that I can think of. One of the more recent ones was Fernando Alonso and he was driving. And as he was doing his own race, he actually noticed up on a screen what was going on for his teammate and that he had just done this great overtake. And to us regular beings, where he looked at this scenario and said, how can you be so dialed in that you are able to take notice of this really specific, you know, piece of information coming into your brain when about what's going on with your teammate on a screen when there's just there's crowds and there's helicopters and, by the way, you're going at, you know, 250 kilometres an hour (laughs) and you can pick up on this minute detail so that how it affects focus is Mm -hmm. really, really interesting. Right, so basically the brains of someone who would be higher sensation seeking are not producing the same amount of cortisol but is delivering more of that dopamine when they look off a tall mountain or out the door of a, a light aircraft perhaps or as they're going around a racetrack. So that's what it feels like. It's really interesting. And it can create a lot of focus for them. And they yeah. often say that time slows down for them in those situations and they can really do the things that need to be done. I would just, what I would do to spend a moment in the, <laughs> the brain of the experience of those types of people because it's so unfamiliar. Ken, what does the amygdala look like in high sensation seekers? Yeah. So the amygdala is a part of our brain that's associated with fear, right? And so when the amygdala sort of sends off its signal, it gets that fear response. Um, So you expect to see sort of lower amygdala reaction from people with our high sensation seeking. In fact, one person I interviewed for my book said that she almost never experiences fear at all. It's a very unfamiliar um, emotion to her. Um, but fear, you know, fear can be a lock, but it also can be a key to certain things as well. And so you want to have a healthy amount of that respect for the things that you're doing. So you're not doing things that are overly dangerous. Um, so having no fear is probably not healthy at all. Um, but I have interviewed a couple of high sensation seekers that fear is not something that they are that familiar with. That's interesting. Wouldn't have served them terribly well back in the day. I suppose our threats are reduced now. (laughs) Now, I ask this question, this next question, knowing that we may never fully understand the precise answer in some areas of psychology in particular, but nature versus nurture. Based on your understanding of research for this specific field of study, To what extent do we understand sensation seeking to be something we're born with or something that develops a certain way based on our environment growing up? I would say, like most things, it's a little bit of both, right? And so research that for twin studies suggests that maybe about 60% of the sensation seeking tends to be genetic, so they see it in in, um, twins. But there are some environmental things that can um, temper it. 
high sensation seekers tend to say that they've grown up in um, sort of highly stimulating environments, but but they also may have created that stimulation themselves by being high sensation seekers. Uh, and so, but uh, but I would say probably around 60% tends to be genetic. And so it's going to be hard if you don't have those genes to sort of turn someone into a high sensation seeker, uh, or if you're a low sensation seeker like me, the odds of being able to transform yourself into uh, someone that's going to uh, enjoy that high sensation seeking and and slow down time for yourself is is I, I I tell people like I don't have the hardware to run that program right so my my body's not producing the chemicals it needs to to process those things and so I have to take my awe where I find it <laughs> okay I see and is there an age from a developmental stage that we would start seeing these types of things play out? Yeah. So it tends to, so if you've looked anywhere on YouTube or on TikTok, you see that a lot of those people who are doing those high sensation seeking activities tend to sort of be adolescent. So it tends to peak in early adolescence and all, well, three of the four different components of sensation seeking tend to get lower as we get older. And so if you are a high sensation seeker, um, when you are a teenager, you may continue that, but you're probably not going to be so much of a high sensation seeker uh, when you are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. A lot of that has to do with the change in the chemicals. Some of it also has to do with some environmental things. A lot of the high sensation seekers I talked to said that they have these, what I call anchors in their environment to sort of tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, that's too dangerous for you to do. Could you please not do that? And so uh, so they tend to pull back from some of those high sensation seeking activities as they get older. Um, Interestingly, the one component of sensation seeking that doesn't change over time is boredom susceptibility. So if you get bored easily when you're younger, you're probably going to get bored easily when you're older as well. Okay. It's just that what you might do with that might change then once you get older. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I see. (laughs) You're probably not going to be as likely to go bungee jumping when you're 95. Right. Exactly. Although, I mean, look. Good innings. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Which does tend, Not as tend likely, to be how but I it could happen. It could happen, it could happen yeah. indeed. <laughs> so you recently fo- focused on a podcast um, which is called All in the Mind. A quick side note for anybody who is interested in psychology and wants accessible, easy to digest information, which is not what we were talking about earlier with academic journals. It's in a really engaging um, format. Absolutely get around this podcast. It's it's excellent. Now, the episode um, that I was referring to in particular shared the experience of a self-described high sensation seeker. And it was told through the story of Marley Nolan Duncan. So he's a Gomorrah man who really generously shared his story. He said he's always loved going fast, but he grew up in a really small town. He was often bored, kind of riding around with his mates looking for something to do. There's that boredom susceptibility that you might be talking about. And he stole something for the first time when he was a kid. He got that first high adrenaline experience. And for him, it basically went from there in more and more dangerous ways, stealing cars, breaking and entering graffiti in really high risk spaces, drugs, you name it. Marley, though, went on to become the first Indigenous person to make the Australian skydive team. He is the first Australian and first Indigenous Australian canopy piloting team as well. 
Next, of course, came the 40 times more dangerous sport of base jumping. And as he said, there's not a lot of old base jumpers. Marley says that if it wasn't for skydiving, he would be dead or in jail. Ken, we can't all go skydiving every weekend. So there's two parts to my next question. Part one is how does a how does high sensation seeking present present in somebody who's just living an ordinary life? You know, it's anyone just out in the world, perhaps living in a suburban environment. That's my first question. What can what does it look like for an ordinary um, person? And my second question is if you don't have the resources to legally satiate this need, what are some of the ways that it could be channeled in a productive or or positive way? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So a lot of the people that I interviewed for the book early on, I was looking at some of these sort of magnificent kinds of sports like bouldering, um, you know, slacklining uh, across big ravines or uh, race car driving. Most people don't have the skills or the access to the things they need in order to do that on a regular basis. And so if you don't have a lot of resources then you're going to do those everyday kinds of sensation-seeking things, which can sometimes get you into trouble. It's driving too fast on the highway. It's not backing down from a fight when you could. Um, It's sort of picking a fight with someone to get those same kinds of, you know, high dopamine, moderate adrenaline. Uh, There was a really interesting study that I I read about high sensation seekers versus average and low sensation seekers. If they, 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 what they did was they gave them a list of things that they could talk to a person about. The high sensation seekers decided to pick topics that they think would lead to a fight. And the average and low sensation seekers were more likely to find things where you would find agreement because they find you know high sensation seekers were, were finding high sensation seeking at 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 you know you know cr- creating tension with people right and so those are really free things to do um, if you are looking for that high sensation seeking um, but I think there are other alternatives to doing like you know you know skateboard stunts or driving fast or not backing down from fights uh, there are lots of sort of adventure sports that people can do um in the US probably there too is, is crossfit something that you um, have it is yes cult-like status yes (laughs) (laughs) so crossfit for example is a great high sensation seeking activity for individuals um there are lots of mud runs that people would take place in that are not as expensive but can also be highly um thrilling for high sensation seekers as well um and 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 then what happens for most people is they choose careers that will indulge their high sensation seeking personality which is good for them but also good for society as well. Maybe it's first responders or uh, people that go into uh, the military, for example, um, all rely on that high sensation-seeking trait. That's really interesting actually as well because Marley did say that early, you know, in his young teen years, he wanted to be an ambulance driver so that he could drive fast. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it affects your your occupation. Obviously, you, know, you don't all have to become professional skydivers. There's lots of situations out there that really benefit from that 
ability mm. to remain really focused in those right. otherwise quite high stress situations. It, even, even within a profession. So uh, nurses and doctors um, may decide to go into emergency medicine rather than sort of primary care um, because they, they, they can find that sort of uh, chaos and, and, and be calm in a chaotic environment in, a, in the emergency room, for example. Right. Yes, that's really interesting. So, yeah, and I can imagine even, you know, if you pair that with other skills like communication, for example, um, negotiating situations, you know, some people would thrive on those types of, you know, potentially high-risk, high-reward situations in a way that would just make others freeze because of that that amygdala response, which is um, obviously so key to the behavioural outcomes. What is the difference between what we'd kind of, you know, uh, anecdotally just call that kind of pure high adrenaline activities, bungee jumping, skydiving, that type of thing. What is the difference between those types of activities and other pretty immense challenges um, like ultra marathons, cycling across continents, you know, those endurance-based mm-hmm. experiences, which, which again, equally many of us would say, I don't understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> does that come from a similar place? Yeah, I think the key to that is that boredom susceptibility piece, right? And so people that get bored relatively easily are probably not going to choose um, uh, activities that are going to make them be, you know, they're, they're you know, for for a very long period of time, you know, uh, so I, those endurance sports do require a, a certain amount of long endured focus, as opposed to sort of a short burst of 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 a kind of activity. So my guess would be that that those individuals that have high boredom susceptibility are going to be more likely to do things like the you know ice climbing uh, or rock climbing that do that, that, or, or those longer kinds of sports, um, because there is a sort of a, a, a long amount of focus that's necessary in those activities. I imagine part of that might also, like you said, it kind of comes down to those different dimensions within sensation seeking in terms of the boredom mm-hmm. susceptibility, but also that experience side of things and that some people just have that you know, they really want to know what it feels like to stand on the top of a mountain or right. you know, to experience that really vivid, unfamiliar, unusual, um, yeah, you know, sensation or, or experience. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think a lot of people sort of think about them as sort of risk takers, but they're not really in it for the risk. The risk is sort of the price of admission to the sensations that they want to have. Um, so. I, I, I don't think about them as sort of risk seekers or risk takers because the sensations are more important than the risk. So sensation versus risk is an interesting kind of concept within itself to to unpack there. Let's yeah. talk a little bit more specifically about Formula One and motorsport for a minute. Daniel Ricciardo, famous Australian <laughs> on this podcast anyway, uh, has said that he likes to do something every now and then that scares him and Lewis Hamilton <laughs> Uh, is a passionate skydiver. But as much as Formula One appears to be the perfect sport for a thrill seeker, it's actually incredibly measured with an astonishing amount of kind of statistic-driven decision-making. Safety innovations have certainly at least made the risk feel 
reduced um, and there is a huge amount of precise preparation. But they still have to be willing to go at, you know, 230 miles an hour, which mm. just because of the nature of it cannot be without quite significant risk. And almost to the day four years ago we lost Antoine Hubert who died at a racetrack that Formula One still races at. Um, you know, that's that's not ancient. That's not ancient history. He's a friend of a lot of the current drivers. You've done sensation-seeking assessments with IndyCar drivers, um, some of which, uh, you know, we, we do see Formula One drivers go over to India, even though a lot of them say the ovals scare them. They go there anyway. <laughs> drivers like Scott Dixon, James Hinchcliffe um, with your Mind of a Motorhead um, podcast. What have you learned about this element of elite motorsport drivers' personalities and is it all about that thrill-seeking or is there is there more to it? Yeah, the, yeah, I think the thing I discovered from from talking to them is the thing I discovered from talking to a lot of high sensation seekers is they are very in tuned with why they do things, right? There, It's not that they aren't thinking through it. I think the common misconception is that they're just adrenaline junkies. They throw themselves into these situations without thinking it through. But I think they have thought it through, and I think they are really um, mindful about the things that that they're that they're up to. The other piece is, and and I feel like I've learned this from them, is that they also trust their themselves and they trust their bodies to do what needs to be done. Um, and 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 it's um, and part of what they're doing is sort of is training that that part of themselves to trust that they can do what needs to be done. Um, and so I, I, that's, that's always impressed me with, and it impressed me with those interviews as well. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. And James Hinchcliffe said, he said, you know, you never want to be out of control. This is not about, like, it's not meant to be thrilling in the, oh, great, I just narrowly escaped death. And he said he yeah. doesn't, bun- he doesn't bungee. He has skydived, but wouldn't do it again. And actually, when I heard him talking about it, I thought, you're super rational and a very considered approach to fear, um, yeah. which I think does very much kind of break down that stereotype that that you've explained. Yeah. Obviously, there's a big combination here with practice and training um, and with those combined with the neurological kind of processes that we've been talking about. To what extent do you think in, when we're thinking about a Formula One car, we've talked about increased dopamine, reduced cortisol, is that ability to help them to stay calm, is that something we can learn how to do or is that something that, you know, comes with that very specific type of brain? <laughs> yeah, I think there are things that we can learn from that. We know one of the things that I'm sure you're familiar with is a psychological concept called habituation, which basically yes. means that the more you do something, the less scary it is. You know, I almost never watch scary movies. The last scary movie I watched was The Ring, which was like years ago with that that creepy girl coming out of the, <laughs> out of the, out of the television. I still have nightmares about it. I'm not but making this w- up. That is the last one that I saw as well. <laughs> And I think I was I was at school at the time. I haven't I haven't put myself in that situation for a good fifteen years. And that was actually the movie uh, that did it. Yep. <laughs> it is the creepiest movie. And so, but if you watched it once, it'd be terrifying. But if you watched it a hundred times, it wouldn't be as scary the hundredth time. And so one of the things that we can do is that sort of power of habituation to sort of drain off some of that fear response for certain kinds of things that we find frightening. 
The other piece is to think about, especially with like adventurous food. So I did a whole chapter in my book about what I called fearless foodies. Some of the things that we find sort of distasteful or, you know, just asking yourself, what's the worst that can happen? If you try something and you don't like it, you could stop eating it. But a lot of people won't even try it. And so one of the things I feel like I've learned from a lot of the high sensation seekers, whether or not they're motorsports individuals or others, is that the the, the beauty of adding um elements to what one of the people I interviewed called the museum in your mind, you know, trying to try those experiences, um, doing things uh, that you might not want to do, not because it's not because it scares you, but because it's an, it's, it's a new sensation. It's a new thing to add to that museum in your mind. That's a lovely idea to kind of, to phrase it in, in that way. You've mentioned, yeah, habituation, um, which was my next question. Um, does that then mean that, you know, because you've become so familiar with that experience through that constant practice race, practice race, mm-hmm. um, and be- being really trained in that way, do, would they then need a kind of a higher dopamine reward to experience the same have the same experience, you know, as, as last time. So the idea of kind of saying, if you get used to going at 230 miles an hour, do I now need to go and jump out of a plane to get the same reward? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people ask that because they, they wonder whether or not it's sort of like an addiction, right? You need more and more to get the same experience. And I think it depends upon the individual. Um, I interviewed one guy who does hella skiing where the helicopter drops you off the top of a mountain and you ski down. And which takes a lot of money, right? (laughs) But he would do the same path over and over and over again because he said he experiences something new with it every time. Um, And so it depends again upon that idea of that boredom. There are some people, they do it once, they just need to get to the next. Other people feel like they can do the same thing. But there also may be different times in your life where you are sort of challenging yourself in different ways. I interviewed one person who calls herself Slackline Girl, who uh, slacklines over these large ravines. And for a little while, she was doing it sort of untethered, um, which is really, really dangerous. But she only did it for a certain amount of time because she was trying to sort of figure something out about herself. And then she said that she didn't need to do it anymore. So I, I don't think that it's common for people to sort of up the ante over and over again uh, with those situations. Knowing what we do about this part of personality, what is likely to be the impact of severe injury or a crash or even seeing somebody else crash? Is that likely to increase that inhibition element? I think what can happen for some high sensation seekers, if they aren't able to practice the things that that bring them that awe, um, I found that a lot of them have a sense of loss for themselves where they can't access that really important part of their personality. Um, one person interviewed for the book was in a car accident, not associated with his sensation seeking. He was hit by an impaired driver. And then his doctor said, you know, you, you, you can't fall. You've had a really serious injury. You need to go for a certain amount of time, but sort of protecting your body. And he became really severely depressed because he really was used to doing those high sensation seeking activities. And he reached out to me and said, you know, I'm in this sort of bond. I can't do these things. I feel like I'm losing a part of myself. 
And so we we looked at his sensation-seeking scores. He was also a really high experience seeker. So I said, hey, let's focus in on some of your adventure travel to sort of feed that part of the personality. And that seemed to help him a little bit. I, I, always, I often think about high sensation seeking that it's not what a person does. It's sort of part of their personality, sort of who they are as a person. And so it's, it's, it can be hard for them to sort of stop doing that part of the thing that brings them that amazing sense of awe that they experience. That's very similar to an experience, the experience that Marley had as well, just to go back to his story. He did eventually have an accident and, and broke his leg and was obviously couldn't couldn't jump for a long time and during that time is when he then experienced a return to some of the less productive behaviors um in terms of that experience seeking side of things and and he also went and spoke to somebody to understand how he could try and kind of channel that more more productively and a big part of it was actually giving back to his community so he went out and um spoke to in particular other indigenous kids and he would kind of he said I almost got this this rush from speaking with with them because they they hit you with such this kind of enthusiasm and curiosity and all this stuff that that was a new experience in and of it of itself but he had a very similar um kind of experience in terms of being unable to to do those things for a while and it then driving him into into other behaviors. We have some questions from our listeners. We have answered actually several of them through our, our conversation already in terms of do we see a change after a big a big crash or incident of another driver. So we might jump to the next one which is how do you hear, um, I know you spoke again, we can probably refer back to the IndyCar drivers in particular, but how do they rationalize the risk that they're taking because they must intellectually or understand the potential consequences, but feel that it's worth doing it anyway. So how do they rationalize the risk? I think we're always doing calculations in our mind in terms of whether or not something is worth doing for the sensation that we hope to have. But I think the calculus for high sensation seekers is a little bit different, right? Because our bodies tell us what's dangerous and what's not. Um, To me, being in a car that's probably driving moderately fast feels terrifying to me. So my calculus is saying, hey, this is too scary. I I don't want to go this fast. But if I didn't have that adrenaline, my body wouldn't tell, it wouldn't feel dangerous in the same kind of way. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is that these are really highly trained athletes. And so they, they understand the technical part, the safety protocols, the things that they need to do to keep themselves safe. And so they, they're, they're making sure to, to follow those as well. And so I think that the, the, for us, when we look at it, we just think, that looks dangerous. I wouldn't do that. But for them, they feel differently, but also they are, they're, they're training for this. This is something they train for nearly every day. So interesting because like you said, they kind of, they, they intellectually know what's, what's going on and there's that respect for it, but then they're also in completely immersed in that world and that environment and they're trained for it. And, um, but then you combine those two things with having a slightly altered cognitive response as well in terms of how those reward and inhibition systems are are, are working. Mm -hmm. Our next question is an interesting one. It says, 
if we want our kids to be open to new experiences, obviously someone who might have read a bit about sensation seeking um, <laughs> as adults, are there things that we can do? So ultimately, you know, if perhaps if you're trying to train your child to be willing to be a Formula One driver, what should I start them <laughs> doing when they when they're young? <laughs> yeah, so I would start really young with you know whether it's different kinds of foods. There's a lot of research that sh- says giving um, kids bitter foods when they're younger um, makes them uh, more likely to try vegetable eat vegetables later. So expose them to unusual foods and unusual experiences that are safe and appropriate for them when they're younger. Um, just to, and, but if they, if you have a child like me, <laughs> when I was a child <laughs> where I thought everything was dangerous and they're there and they're meant to be a chill seeker, um, you can do your best to expose them to things, but they might be finicky eaters. They might not like lots of risks, but I think exposing them to sort of appropriately um, uh, and looking at that curiosity around experiences at a young age might be helpful. Okay. Interesting. So go and eat a lemon kids. <laughs> Go eat a lemon or, or, no, or take them to the farmer's market and find the strangest looking fruits that you can try and then take it home and practice trying them out when you, when that's, you know, and make that sort of part of your weekly thing. And that that's going to feed that experience seeking part of their, of their personalities. <laughs> very cool. So our next question is very specific and I'm not sure if this is actually something you're going to be answer, be able to answer, but I do have some research kind of <laughs> as backup here as well. The question here is do, and this is more about, I suppose, the brain rather than sensation mm-hmm. seeking, which is do F1 drivers get micro concussions? So I'm not sure if you've read anything mm. about that in particular, but I have some research here in case you want me to jump in with that. I'll let you take this one. <laughs> sure. So I thought this is a really interesting question. So this is coming up now in more and more sports, obviously with football in the US, but also with football in Australia. We're also seeing it in things like bobsledding, which I didn't come to mind, but now that I think about it and I've watched some YouTube videos actually makes total sense. So basically from what I could see, there was no conclusive research with this. There is evidence of obviously concussion in F1, but accuracy is very much missing. There was one small study from around 2000, but we're really relying on kind of self-report and post-incident kind of head impact. And it's not so much about those continuous small bumps that can result in um, the micro concussions that this question this person has asked about um, as much as post-traumatic injury potentially and and their the concussions around that what was interesting very relevant to formula one though was that when the regulations changed in 2022 to try and improve the quality of racing um, which then included um, an increased emphasis on the ground effect cars and the aerodynamics as well but it reduced the ride quality by simplifying the suspension. And at that point it had this effect, which we now know as porpoising. So basically you get this bouncing of of the car. But even Lewis Hamilton, arguably in one of the most affected cars, said that he never saw a specialist about it. So despite having increased headaches and having concerns about concussions, and he did actually articulate having concerns about it, um, others actually complained of back pain and blurred vision. No one no one saw specialists. So that was probably one of the most interesting years of kind of potential research in this sport. And also we have just such a limited data pool. You know, there's only 20 drivers. So our sample size is always going to be 
really, really small. Um, but we did have an interesting quote from Dr. Adrian Casey. He was a past president of the British Association of Spine Surgeons. And he said that that bouncing could theoretically result in brain damage from that repeated trauma, but obviously we were in uncharted territory. So apologies to the listener who's written that question in. It's a bit of a um, inconclusive uh, response, but that is also the nature of the research. But it is such an interesting sport on in that way from a physiological perspective. It's very unique. You know, competitors are frequently subject to those really high velocity, high G-forces with a rotational component, which when you then combine with that that bouncing as we saw in last year in particular with the porpoising, theoretically, maybe, but we don't have any clear answers for you yet. So apologies, listener, but that is the state of the research at the moment um, from, from what we could see. Let's get back to some high sensation seeking though. Ken, I took the survey. I would love to discuss yes. my results just for a few minutes, if that's okay, because I thought, you know what, I if we're going to talk about other people, <laughs> <laughs> I thought if we're going to talk about other people and their results, it's only fair that uh, I do the same and we talk about those as well. So what did you learn about me? So, yes, yeah, so we so let's go through all four of yours and I'm going to take some, and this is our first time meeting, so I'm going to make some yep. Uh, guesses about things okay. that you might like based <laughs> upon, and you can tell me if I'm completely off or or if I I might be a little bit right. So your thrill and adventure seeking was eight out of ten. Um, your experience seeking was five out of ten. Your disinhibition was eight out of ten, and your boredom was three out of ten. And so my my guess <laughs> is that you're not a kind of person that gets bored relatively easily, right? <laughs> Yeah, I just, I am equally happy sitting, watching Netflix and it can be a show that I have seen before. I can't tell you how many times I have watched at least series one to eight of Grey's Anatomy. Um, <laughs> like over and over again? <laughs> over and over again. I actually find it not only am I not bored, I'm comforted by that. So, right. I was um, like, oh. that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's something great. That I can absolutely do. But then I, I'm equally kind of happy in very different situations, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something that's I thought was interesting, your disinhibition score was relatively high. So, so there are, my guess is there are times that you leap before you look, <laughs> that you find yourself <laughs> in situations and you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> Occasionally, yes. I, it's, it's an interesting one because I think for most people who know me wouldn't necessarily assume that, but there have actually been quite a few situations where that has happened. And it's and the other thing is that when I think about the opposite of that, of having to be overly kind of... I don't know, restrained, like that, that mm -hmm. a lack of sense of ability to go and do kind of as I please like is something right. that I genuinely find scary. Like that's, I, yeah. I get a very unpleasant feeling if, you know, as, so as you can imagine, lockdown for me, I, and not to say that other people didn't have, you know, um, equally challenging experiences, mm -hmm. but that idea of not being able to go and do mm -hmm. things really, I, I really struggled with it. And that I, when I saw that result, I, I wondered how much of a contributor that might have been. 
Yeah. It was a lo- really tough for a lot of high sensation seekers because the things that they normally do, they, they couldn't do at all. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, and your experience seeking was sort of in the average range. So five out of 10, um, but your thrill and adventure seeking uh, was an eight out of 10, which probably shouldn't surprise me given, <laughs> given what you're interested in. Um, and so my guess is that you probably, that you probably um, indulge in some, high sensation seeking kinds of activities sometimes. I do. I, so I have been skydiving. Um, and what's funny is that I, yeah, I don't know. I, when I listened to Scott Dixon talking about this, I really related to his Mm. experience wholeheartedly where I, I don't, I would never look before I jumped, like leaped kind of ever completely. I would still have had that thought of I've checked the depth of the water. <laughs> I have, you know, there's certain, there's certain things about that, especially probably also being Australian and growing up around the sea, that's always been a message that's just drilled into right. you. So anything that's kind of around the water or that type of thing, you have a, a very high kind of just you know, check your depths um, and that type of thing. But once I have, let's do it. And um, so I, yeah, I have been skydiving. I like to scuba dive as well. Um, and we've done quite a few of those kind of, yeah, through tunnels and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's there's definitely something about that that I, um, I really enjoy. But I do feel it gradually diminishing. Yeah, yeah. As and, I and, age. And is that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there are chemicals that are involved in that as we get older. Like there are certain, like there's our monoamine oxidase tends to go down. Testosterone levels for both men and women are associated with that. And then, of course, the older you are, the more you have to lose, right? <laughs> yes, I think so. And I think that there's that's probably more of an element. I think you just that fear of it's going to sound very morbid, but that fear of oh god, what if I only live to thirty two? That that is something that I think about now. Whereas mm when I was doing probably more of that type of thing in my early twenties and late teens, I didn't think about it. Like it was, it was just somebody bought me a ticket to go skydiving. Off we go. I did a free fall um, when I was in, I was traveling during my, sorry, this is a classic, sorry, mum story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm my, my heart raises, my heart is is racing just hearing about it. Just hearing it. Yeah. But what's interesting (laughs) is that in these situations, somebody else often bought me the ticket. So I find it quite difficult to make the decision to say, you know, yeah, let's do that. But then my competitive side does come out and um, they'll say, well, I've already bought your ticket now. You wouldn't check it out, would you? And that's something that is <laughs> probably deeper than the inhibition response. So the free fall that I did when I was overseas, that was one of those things where they they you kind of wrap you up in a canvas basically and they hoist you up and then you actually pull your own ripcord and it's up to you when you pull it. But, of course, you have to wait till you get to the top. You can't come down and say you only went halfway up and then you <laughs> kind of you fall and then it was a, a kind of this pendulum, pendulum swing and... I can say with confidence that I wouldn't do that now. I would skydive again, but that was something that was right on the edge for me. And so bungee jumping's a no. <laughs> but yeah, there's other things that I I really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I can say with confidence 
I will probably never do those things, <laughs> but I'm happy to talk to people who have, and I feel like I learn something every time. And so that's the yeah. thing I love about this questionnaire is you can learn something about yourself and it helps people to understand each other. Um, and, and yeah, to me that that's, and that's what, you know, psychology is all about. I love that about it. Yeah. It is, it is really interesting. And I, um, I wondered, you know, is, cause you've described yourself as a, a chill seeker, the opposite. <laughs> Is your is it because your experience is so different that it it's almost more fascinating to you? Absolutely. Like I want to like you know the reason why I became a psychologist. I, I love understanding how people experience the world. It's, it's amazing to me that two different people can have the same experience and and have a very different experience of it, right? And so sort of crawling in the mind and understanding it is uh, is what it's part of the, the, the you know my score was an total was an 8 out of 10 for all four oh, to- scales. <laughs> not yes, I know. Not just for one, but Amazing. all four added together was an 8. And most of my points came from experience seeking because I'm curious right. about people. Yeah. Mm. I think when I think about experiences, I um, it, it, the, the food thing does kind of come to mind the most, and that's mm-hmm. something that I find, I suppose, less enticing than yeah, um, than the kind of behavioral experiences, the kind of the risk experiences. I was going to guess that that if you had a, <laughs> an unusual food, my guess is that you might nibble at it, as opposed to a lot of my high sensation seeking friends just take the biggest bite possible. I'm like, how do you know if you're going to like it or not? I'll find out when it hits my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that gives me an ick factor, but sure. I'll jump out of a plane. That's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. Where can our listeners go and find your work and follow what you're doing? Yeah. So if you can go to my website, which is drkencarter.com, you can find out um, what I've been up to. Uh, interviews like this one will be up there. I'm also on X um, and uh, at uh, Dr. Ken Carter and also on um, like on social media at Dr. Ken Carter. Fantastic. I also highly recommend um, your TED Talk just for the thrill of it, an inside look at sensation seeking. It's so entertaining as well as interesting. Um, So definitely check that out as well. We love information that is interesting and insightful but also done in an engaging way and that definitely hits all of those points. So go and check that out as well. Thank you so much for joining me here on Lakeside Drive, bringing an element of science to our Formula One babble. We love it. Thank you. So it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not too thrilling. <laughs> Just the right amount. Yeah. A big thank you to Ken for a fascinating chat. Listeners, let us know what your experiences are. Have you ever wondered why you're more adventurous than others? Or have you never been able to understand why people do these things? Do you love trying new foods or more comfortable sticking to what you know? If you would like to support the show, please feel free to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find us. You can also subscribe on YouTube or jump over to our website to pick up some merch. See you next time for another episode of Lakeside Drive. Sports Social Podcast Network.